This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. It is good to be here today. I am uh, Derek, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and it is my privilege to talk about Jesus this morning. He is who we need. And I uh, hope we never forget that. Thank you, Daniel and Melissa, for leading us this morning and uh, in songs and hymns and Pastor Dawn for that wonderful call to worship. I have to say that the circumstances of the past few months, starting with a tornado and leading into a pandemic, and now what's happening in our nation, even the events of last night in our city, has kind of got me a little off kilter, um, a little more than I even know how to process uh, I found my heart to be unsettled, and um, finding stability is taking a little bit of effort. But a safe place exists for the people of God, um, something solid. There's a firm foundation, and Psalm 46 is where my heart turned last night uh, when I didn't know where to go. So let me read just a couple of verses from this. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we do not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains are moved, falling into the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, verse 6, the kingdoms totter, but he utters his voice and the earth melts because the Lord of hosts is with us. He makes, behold the works of the Lord, he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear, the weapons of violence. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. So I hope that is comfort to you as it was to me. Uh, it's like cool water to be with you today. As Christian Wilson often says, thank you for bringing the church with you wherever you are this morning. And, and I'm grateful for um, Jason, our executive efforts, and finding a way to balance our kind of public health protocols with this eagerness to get back together and to be in fellowship again in proximity. Um, but to those of you joining by live stream this morning, I can't wait to see you again soon. I will say it has been a little bit weird speaking. It's weird speaking to an empty room. So this is, uh, this is much better. Uh, grateful for you being here, if nothing else to humor me. Uh, so before we dig into the text today, I would call our attention to one very important um, day on the church calendar, the Christian calendar. Um, this is one of our anchor points for people of faith. So no matter what is happening around us, um, there are daily rhythms. Um, not unlike the psalmist who says, I wait for the Lord as for the watchman watches for the morning. Every single day for 6,000 years or however long it's all been around, the sun has come up and the sun has gone down. On the very worst day in human history, the sun came up and the sun went down. And God is that firm, the truth of who he is, 
And the truth of the gospel is that certain and that secure. And so we, we, we apply rhythms that help us to remember these things, the daily rhythms of prayer, meditation on the scripture, the weekly rhythms of gathering and communion. It's why it matters. It's why it's important to punctuate our lives with these things. But there's also the annual rhythms of the Christian calendar, of things like Advent and Christmas and Lent and Holy Week and Easter and today, Pentecost. Um, this is the day that we remember the Holy Spirit descending on the disciples with tongues of fire. This was a promise fulfilled. Just before his ascension, Jesus told the disciples to return to Jerusalem and from Acts 1, wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 2, Luke records, when the day of Pentecost day, the day of Pentecost came, the 50th day from Passover, 10 days after his ascension, they were all gathered in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to the rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And we look around at the chaos. And I'm reminded of the exchange that Moses had with Joshua in Numbers 11 when God was going to allow, take a portion of the spirit that he had imbued into Moses and share it with 70 elders. And 68 showed up, two missed the appointment, but the spirit still fell on them and they were prophesying. And Joshua was like, Moses, don't let, this isn't right. They shouldn't get part of the spirit. And Moses turns to Joshua and says, would it be that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit into all of them. And on Pentecost, that's what happened. And the Holy Spirit came in power. And in Acts 4, we see that same group after they've been persecuted and they've been told to stop preaching. It, he came again in power. He pulsed in them again. And I'm praying that he will pulse in us this morning. That Holy Spirit that had been restrained fell upon the believers and the church exploded and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is now present in the life of every believer and he is a marvelous and mysterious gift empowering us with the divine energy to love know and love and obey God and to help others do the same all while fitting us for heaven and preparing us securing us for the resurrection so let's pray and then we'll jump in Heavenly Father it overwhelms us that on this day of Pentecost nearly 2,000 years ago, you taught the hearts of your faithful people by sending to them the light of your Holy Spirit. And today, we humbly ask that you will send your Holy Spirit in power again, fresh, and that you would renew the face of the whole earth. Oh God, please awaken the whole human race to trust you and to open all of our hearts to the good news of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, and who in the unity of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so let's go to work. Luke chapter 22. This is week 99 in our journey together to discover the real Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. So grab your Bible and uh, we're, we'll, we'll jump in. We are in the final hours by way of context. We're in the final hours of Jesus' life. Over the last two weeks, we've followed him into the agony of the garden. We've observed the bitter fruit of Jesus' betrayal his arrest, his first trial before Annas. And we're going to talk about him a little bit more in just a moment. But he was 
the former high priest who still pulled strings behind the scenes while his sons and sons-in-law served in the role, very political. And then we've been, last week we were with uh, Peter's denial as Jesus is led across the courtyard to Caiaphas's house. So if you remember back in verse 54, it says that they seized him and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. So it's where we sat as we uh, come to our section of the text today. The hour of darkness had come. Jesus would soon taste the cup of wrath, and after suffering at the hands of unjust men, he would extend the cup of a new covenant to all of us who believe. Luke first introduces us to those who would be involved in condemning Jesus back in Luke chapter 3. Um, he says in verse 1 and 2, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate, he's a name we're going to see in just a minute, or we just heard, governor of Judea, Herod, the king or tetrarch of Galilee, so we'll see him enter the scene, and during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So we, there's, these, there's four men that we're going to interact with here that Jesus is going to be interacting with um, that we'll learn about more. After his arrest in the garden, John uh, chapter 18, the gospel writer tells us that they led Jesus to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And so Jesus' first trial was with Annas. Um, after examining Jesus unsuccessfully, John goes on in verse 24 of chapter 18 to say that Annas was then led bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So this is likely the moment, I just say all this to for context, this is likely the moment when uh, what we learned about last week in verse 61, that the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. So remember that scene where Jesus catches Peter's eyes. He's coming across the courtyard. The residence of the high priest was a series of dwellings and offices that would surround a courtyard. And the courtyard was right where Peter was warming himself in the fire. So again, first stop Annas, then across the courtyard to Caiaphas' house that likely included a smaller or select member group of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body. So verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus, guarding him, crowding around, they were pressing in on him. They were mocking him, ridiculing him, making fun of him, and they, they were beating him. They were striking him, slapping him, hitting him. And then they blindfolded him. And they kept taunting him, saying, prophesy. Who is it that just wounded you? Who is it that just struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him, cursing him, insulting him, slandering him. While Matthew chapter 26 and Mark 14 both record this second trial in more detail, Luke focuses on Christ's mistreatment. And the abuse is hard to process, but the blindfolding of Jesus is particularly ironic to me because we've already seen that Jesus is able to prophesy accurately who would betray him, who would deny him, and that he would be in this exact spot being beaten and mocked by his enemies. But we should not move past this too quickly. 
the most appalling aspect of all of it is that this wasn't just anyone that they were abusing. Cyril of Alexandria, fifth century church father said in his commentary on this passage, he said, Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator and architect of all, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is of surpassing greatness in glory and majesty, the foundation of everything, and that in which all things exist and remain. All things exist in him. He is the breath of all the Holy Spirits in heaven. This one is despised as one of us, patiently endures beatings and submits to the ridicule of the wicked. He offers himself to us as a perfect pattern of patience, and he rather reveals the incomparable greatness of his godlike gentleness. This is why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, or chapter 12, verse 3 says, Consider him, consider this Jesus who endured for sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint hearted. We wince when we read about his mistreatment. We cringe at the sacrilege. We bristle at the perpetrators. And yet it's worth examining how we relate to Jesus. Have we locked Jesus down? Have we bound him in an effort to define him in our terms? Do we mock him by claiming his name but not having any power because of our own self-righteousness and effort? Am I causing him to suffer abuse by taking offense and harboring bitterness and dwelling on resentments and hurt feelings and bruised egos? Do I hold my hand over his eyes, hoping he doesn't see my shamefulness, presuming on his grace? And do I blaspheme him by failing to believe? These are tough questions that I've had to ask myself this week. I processed through what he went through. This isn't even, this is just the beginning. This isn't even, we're not even scratching the surface on what he suffered in these next few hours. But I remembered that Jesus was indeed bound, but he offers me freedom even in my ignorance. Jesus was mocked, and yet he approaches me with dignity, even in my falseness, especially in my falseness. Jesus was struck, and yet he only heals. He never injures, even when I come with my pride. Jesus was blinded, and yet he opens my eyes. Now I'm so self-sufficient in my mind. Jesus was blasphemed, and yet he remains for you. He remains for me, defending us even in our unfaithfulness. And this is good news. So they are mistreating him. Annas examines him. We'll look at this in a second. And then he goes across the courtyard, catches Peter's eye. He's beaten and mocked at Caiaphas' house. And verse 66 of chapter 22, and the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both the chief priests and the scribes. This is now the full Sanhedrin. 
leading him away to their council. So it's daybreak. The full Sanhedrin now meets during this short period overnight between his arrest in the garden and his crucifixion at nine in the morning. There were two sets of three examinations. Three were conducted by the religious leaders and three by the civil authorities for six in total. And the first is the one we talked about, Annas. He issued the indictment. We read about this in Luke, John, Luke and John. The second was Caiaphas and this select group of um, the Sanhedrin, a small group. So it functioned as a grand jury. These two were highly irregular. This, these initial trial, this initial trial of Jesus, the mission of the Jewish law that this is supposed to work was turned on its head. The process was in reverse order. You don't issue an indictment after or before the grand jury meets, right? Kind of get in the cart before the horse. There were no witnesses for the defense. And there's a rush timeline. This is a, this is a two-week or two-day process at minimum. It required that there be time. So they rushed through all of that. And they were seeking capital punishment, which was extremely rare in the, over the Passover season. So this third examination begins at dawn. The first thing that they did right. Um, and the official trial begins. But time was still of the essence. Uh, because according to Jewish law, all this had to be wrapped up before sunset on Friday, the beginning of the Jewish Sabbath. Time was of the essence. They, were, they, had, they had to get to the, the point. So they cut to the chase in verse 67. They looked him right in the eye and they said, are you the Christ? If you are the Christ, tell us. If you are the Messiah, if you are the promised one, if you are the anointed one of God, tell us. Now this is not the first time that this question had been asked. Back in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 22 and 24 records that then came the festival of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter at this time. And Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade, and the Jews who were gathered around him were saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. So this had already been asked and answered by his detractors, but even those closest to him were asking these questions. John the Baptist in Luke chapter 7, verse 19, called two of his disciples and sent them to ask the Lord, are you the one who is to come or should we look for someone else? And it's the question that we all have to answer as we come face to face with the real Jesus. But if the religious leaders were honestly seeking an answer and truly curious about Jesus' claims and his divinity, would they have dared torture him first? I really wrestled with that this week. If this was a legitimate line of questioning, wouldn't they have been more restrained out of fear that it might be discovered during the examination that he was, in fact, who he claimed to be? You can see ulterior motives brought to this question. And for us, what expectations do we have when we ask Jesus, are you the one? Verse 67. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. And he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And this word believe is, you won't put your faith in me. You won't trust me and follow me and become my disciple. And if I ask, you won't answer. Not honestly. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. 
Jesus knew their minds were made up. And during that almost identical exchange we talked about a minute ago, back in John 10, it records that Jesus said the same thing to them when they said, tell us, are you the Messiah? And he says, I did tell you, but you did not believe. And so they picked up stones to stone him. Yet he responds in a way that leaves little doubt in their minds what the answer to their question is. By referring to himself as the son of man in this context, they knew immediately he was referring to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. In my vision, Daniel says, I, at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority and glory and sovereign power and all nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And he adds a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. He says, The Lord says to my Lord, Set at my right hand. Make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is communicating in no uncertain terms that the Messiah they were looking for was not a mere human descendant of David ushering in a renewed geopolitical Jewish kingdom. No, he was God and equal with the Father, and his kingdom was much bigger than they imagined and much different than they wanted. And this was getting to the very heart of the definition of Messiah. He reframed and answered the question at the same time, and their follow-up question reveals that they knew exactly this is what he had done. Verse 70, and so they all said, so are you the son of God then? And he replied, you say that I am, or your words, not mine, or as Pastor Don read, yes, I am. This is an emphatic statement. They'd already determined the outcome. Could what he was saying about himself be blasphemous if it was actually true? They'd already decided. It's a fait complete. He's guilty. But what do we know about this Jesus? And what had they witnessed and heard for themselves. Was Jesus God? Could he demonstrate the power of God in his earthly life? Yes. There are many attributes of God that we share. We can love, right? We can have relationship. We can we join him in so many different ways. But there are elements of there are attributes of God that we don't have. They're not communicable to us. And yet Jesus demonstrates all Knowledge, knowledge of all things. In Matthew 26, he tells, and, and we read it in Luke, he tells Peter directly, you will deny me and in the time frame. He demonstrates his power over all things. John 11, 43, raising Lazarus from the dead. John 2, 19, predicting and prophesying his own death and resurrection. He tells us in Matthew 28 that he'll be with us to the end of the age. His it ends, Luke 5, 29, just an example. Your sins are forgiven. They, they, the only thing that made the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, more upset than him healing someone on the Sabbath day was then punctuating that with absolution, with forgiving their sins. Only God can do that. And he received worship. As I'm reminded of Thomas coming, to, coming face to face with Jesus after the resurrection, proclaiming him as Lord and God. We also know that he had power in ways that we cannot, we can't comprehend. Matthew 
4, Mark 4, Luke 4, John 4. I love one little, I pulled one little snippet from each of the Gospels. Matthew 4, 23 reveals Jesus' power over sickness and disease. Just one example. Mark 4, 30 is power over the forces of nature as they marvel. Who is this that the wind and the sea obey him? Luke 4, 35, his power over fallen angels and demonic spirits. Even the forces of hell have to get permission from Jesus. John 4, 50, he has power over death itself as he crashed every funeral he ever went to by raising the person from the dead. <laughs> Furthermore, the scriptures proclaim Jesus to be God. He's not merely a good man or a prophet. As our friends and Islam would say, he's not the spirit brother of Lucifer, as our Mormon friends might say. He's not a form of the archangel Michael. Um, John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is distinct from God the Father, and yet he shares the same nature. Colossians 1.16-19 says, For in him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authority. All of these things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the the preeminence, the supremacy, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. Jesus is creator, preexistent, full of the essence and nature of God. Hebrews 1, 8 and 10. But about the Son, the scripture says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. The writer of Hebrews quoting from Psalm 45, and then he adds, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands, from Psalm 102. Jesus is entirely equal to Israel's God. There's no distinction. First Peter 1, we have, First Peter 1, chap, uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 2, and we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, sprinkled with his blood. Jesus is declared to be both God and Savior. Revelation 1, 8, Jesus speaking to John, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. He is the first and the last, the Almighty. And Jesus says to them and to all of us, from now on, you will see the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of the power of God. The reality is that Jesus will examine us as Lord and judge. The fact is that we stand exposed in that judgment. But the good news is that Jesus is full of grace and truth, that righteousness and grace have met together in him. The religious leader's response to Jesus serves as a warning for us that self-righteousness blinds us to the real Jesus. That knowledge of the scriptures doesn't mean we aren't still blind to the real Jesus. Jesus told them in John chapter 5, verse 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. This is what we need for life and godliness. This is the book of life. It changes us. Everything we need, we find our sustenance in this book. And yet, it's not enough if we miss who the book is talking about. 
who the book is leading us to. These are Jesus' exact words. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, he says. And yet you refuse to come to me and have life. Craving and looking for our identity and others and what they think of us blinds us to the real Jesus. That's how that religious, the leaders in the Sanhedrin had become so political. They were, they were worried about what everybody else was thinking and they had their thing they had to protect. Faithless religion born of cynical, bitter, legalistic, judgmental motives blind us to Jesus. And so it comes to the end of their trial and they said, verse 71, what further testimony, what other evidence do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. And the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. So this initiates now the first trial in the second phase of three examinations by the civil authorities. Pilate, then Herod, and Pilate. We'll see more of them in the coming weeks. But I would note that, interestingly, the verdict of all three of the religious trials was guilt. While the verdict of all three of the civil examinations was innocence. We stand here this morning in our circumstances, in our relationships, in our failures, in our routines, in our honesty, and even in our uncertainties, and we ask, Jesus, are you the one? No one has ever suffered a greater injustice than Jesus did. And instead of resisting and railing against it, he crawls up on his own cross. He suffers all the indignities and he bears all our ultimate penalty the full measure of God's wrath, he drinks it because of love. And I feel like it's important to add at this point um, something about our own response to personal injury or hurt. When we've been slighted or offended or mistreated, we're in a particularly vitriolic season in our culture the media and social media especially demand that people take sides. And the division is visceral. Ultimate, ulterior motives, secret prejudices, self-righteous judgments, even the fear of being on the wrong side of public opinion is palpable. And this should not be the condition of the church. Divisions and quarreling have no place among believers. Our singular devotion is to Christ. Our singular commitment is to the gospel. And our singular expression is love. In fact, one of the defining characteristics of the Axis Church that has been so beautiful in its expression for us is from Galatians, I pull from Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you, who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There's no more racial division. There's neither slave nor free. There's no more socioeconomic division. There's neither male nor female. There's no more gender division. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's what makes the church the hope of the world and the answer to our culture. The divisions that plague our culture have no place in the church or in our relationships at home. So how do we respond to the inevitable offenses 
that we suffer and the injustices that we experience, even at the hand of a brother and sister, God forbid. Well, bear with me as I read from Oswald Chambers' famous collection, My Utmost for His Highest, his July 14th entry, as he speaks to the posture of humility, of how love covers a multitude of sins, and of embracing the way of Christ. Bear with me. In the natural realm, if a person does not retaliate when offended, it's because he's a coward. But in the spiritual realm, it is the very evidence of the Son of God in him that he does not hit back. When you are insulted, you must not only not resent it, but you must make it an opportunity to exhibit the Son of God in your life. And you cannot imitate the nature of Jesus. It's either in you or it's not. A personal insult becomes an opportunity for a saint to reveal the incredible sweetness of the Lord Jesus. The teaching of Jesus, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, is not do your duty, but it's in effect do what is not your duty. It is not your duty to go the extra mile. It is not your duty to turn the other cheek. But Jesus says that if we are his disciples, we will always do these things. We will not say, oh, well, I just can't take it anymore. I've been so misrepresented. I've been so misunderstood. Every time I insist on having my own rights, I hurt the Son of God. While, in fact, I could prevent Jesus from being hurt again if I would just take the blow myself. Hasn't Jesus suffered enough? What is, this is the real meaning of the filling up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, Oswald Chambers says. A disciple realizes that it is his Lord's honor that is at stake in his life, not his own honor. So we never look for righteousness in the other person. Don't set up a standard for how they should be based on my idea, but I never cease to be righteous myself. I never cease to seek Jesus. We're always looking for justice, and yet the essence of the teaching of Jesus is never look for justice in the other person, but never cease to give it yourself. What are we looking for in Jesus? What are we demanding him to be? Our problem solver? Our happiness supplier? Our success insurer? Our pain stopper? Our justice provider? Our faith, our favor maker? These are all things we, we think about when we think about what, is, what could Jesus be? And so when it doesn't pan out that way, what it happens to us, right? Or what if I fell on my face in faith and obedience to a master, to a king, a creator, a ruler, a judge, and I don't turn a blind eye to who I know him to be because he doesn't fit what I want. Seeking his indwelling presence through the power of the Holy Spirit to be a humble servant in me. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the wisdom I need. I don't have the humility I need. Being more like Jesus is not possible for me. I need more of Jesus in me, coursing through me, divine energy external to me, changing me, me fading so that eventually I'm not who's seeing, I'm not who's saying, I'm not who's thinking, I'm not who's speaking. It's Jesus totally absorbed 
lost in him completely, found in him. The selfless, selfless advocate of others in me, a personification of wisdom in me, a conduit of mercy and forgiveness through me that's foreign to me. He's my propitiation and my wrath absorber, my justifier, my sanctifier, my glorifier, my companion, my brother, my friend, my true supplier, my satisfaction, my comfort. That's who Jesus is. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged this morning. As we end with the Hebrews chapter four, verse 14 and 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, not one like Annas and Caiaphas, a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize, to sympathize with us, to, to identify with us, to enter into our place with our weaknesses, our frailty and our feebleness and our pain and our hurt, he enters into that. He doesn't just hear about it. He doesn't just observe it casually or disinterestedly. He, he went into it. He stood there and took the beating. He entered into it all, into our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted. It means tested examined, tried in every way just as we are and yet he did not sin and that's what makes him glorious because verse 16 that lets us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that I can receive the mercy that I need and find grace to help me in my time of need it's available to us so please Bend your knee to Jesus this morning. Lay down your indignities and your offenses and your shame and your guilt and your pain and your self-sufficiency and your self-righteousness and your model of Jesus made in your own image and your idols of comfort and security and success. And for all of us, even if you're outside the faith, maybe especially Remember that Jesus is better. If you don't hear me say anything ever, just remember, Jesus is better. And he suffered these things for you. Not so that you could try harder only to come up short, but so that you can experience his real presence and rest in a relationship with Jesus that can become more real than the very flesh on your bones. So come to him, believe him. Believe him more. Receive him as Lord. Strive with all the energy that he supplies to abide in him and worship him this morning. There's no greater expression of this, in my opinion, than to adore Jesus in the Eucharist. This is our great privilege. And so for those who are present with us this morning, uh, we have these uh, self-contained elements positioned in a couple of places around the room. The wafer is sealed at the top of the cup and it represents the body of Christ broken for you. The second seal uh, represents the blood, the, the juice in the bottom represents the blood of Christ that's poured out for you. And for those of you that are gathering via live stream, we invite you to participate in this sacrament in a tangible way wherever you find yourself. This invitation is extended to believers and we ask that if possible, husbands and fathers, serve your families and in other scenarios, serve each other. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. 
So we take them in remembrance that Jesus Christ suffered and died for me and you. And then we feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. This very act of taking and eating unites us with Jesus and with each other in unity as his bride in the divine mystery. So we proclaim this mystery of the faith. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. So after I pray for these gifts, please pause for a moment of quiet reflection and gratitude for the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, for his atoning sacrifice and his reconciling work. Let's pray. O oh God of peace, you are who we need. You are our reconciler. You brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the everlasting covenant. Make us perfect in every way to do his will, to lay down our rights, to walk in his ways, and to work in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight for your glory. May the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be on this time of communion and remain with us forevermore. Amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.